Hi, everyone, and welcome back to A Book Nerd and the Bible. My name is Sam, and each week I compare some of my favorite books to biblical stories to see what we can learn about both. In our show's inaugural season, we are focusing on Jesus before he starts his ministry and the origin stories of some of my favorite characters. Today is the second episode of our three-part series focusing on female characters written by female authors. As I shared in our last episode, men, for whatever reason, do not typically read books by women. Men only comprise 19% of the readership for the 10 best-selling female authors of all time. And that is frankly an embarrassing statistic. So I am pushing myself, and hopefully other men, to read more books by women to overcome this stigma. Reading books by people who don't share your identity or worldview builds empathy, gives understanding, and fantastic female authors who write great stories do not deserve to be written off as unimportant or uninspiring to a male readership. The book we will be looking at today is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. The novel follows a young girl named Francie Nolan as she grows up in a rough neighborhood in Brooklyn, right outside of New York City. The book is a wonderful coming-of-age story that shows the resiliency of immigrant families during the early 20th century, and many of Francie's experiences in the book are based on the author Betty Smith's own life. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn was published in 1943, and it was one of the most popular armed services edition books supplied to soldiers during World War II. A 1945 movie adaptation won two Academy Awards, and a popular Broadway musical adaptation debuted in the 1950s. The book is now regarded as one of the books of the 20th century by the New York Public Library and a PBS Great American Read Top 100 pick, where it finished number 13 in America's Most Beloved Books. It has sold more than 4 million copies in 16 languages and inspired everyone from Soldiers to Oprah Winfrey to some Sesame Street segments. We are going to be comparing one of the book's early chapters where Francie visits her local library to a scene in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 where Mary and Joseph, after being unable to find Jesus on a trip home to Galilee from Jerusalem, finally locate their son in the temple speaking with the teachers in the temple courts. This story is the last information we have about Jesus before we see him start his ministry at age 30, and it is memorable as the only story we receive about the childhood of Christ other than his birth. I think these stories will help us understand how books, knowledge, and childhood all mix together, and I am excited to see how Francie's experience can shape the way we see this often overlooked story of a young Jesus in a new way. It is time for our obligatory warning of the week. I am going to restrict my discussion of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn to the earliest chapters of the book, but I might discuss some events that occur later in the story. If you have not read A Tree Grows in Brooklyn and want to avoid spoilers, then you may want to stop here. But if you're listening to this podcast, then you probably can't resist a good story about a library, so you might as well just join in on the discussion. Follow me to a tiny Brooklyn library in the magnificent temple of first century Jerusalem, and let's dive in. Our biblical story today is one of the trickier ones we have talked about so far to properly place into historical context. This story describes Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, losing their son as they return home from a major Jewish holiday in Jerusalem, and how they find him in the temple courts talking with some teachers. 
The story comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. We have discussed the Gospel of Luke several times on this podcast, so I won't do an extensive background on it. But I do want to reiterate a few points about when this Gospel was written and its targeted audience before we start the story today. The Gospel of Luke was written around 50 years after Jesus' ministry, and the author is typically believed to be a physician named Luke, who traveled the Mediterranean world with another New Testament author, Paul. The Gospel of Luke was written in conjunction with the book of Acts, and is one of the earliest attempts to write a history of the early days of Christianity. Luke tells the story of Jesus' ministry, and the book of Acts details how the first Christians spread their faith. Although it is a history, The author of Luke likely did not intend for every detail of the book to be taken literally, but rather, a reader would be expected to understand the themes of Christianity through the stories. Luke's audience appears to be a church made up of primarily Gentiles, or non-Jewish, converts to Christianity. This means Luke is often trying to write stories that involve culturally Jewish events inside of a divine man writing format that would have been familiar to an audience in the Greco-Roman world. As I read the story, think about what parts of the story are explaining important Jewish events and which parts make Jesus seem more like a figure from Roman and Greek history, like Plato or Hercules. Okay, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, While his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This story can be pretty confusing at first. And it can also seem to paint either the young Jesus as a trickster, or his parents as a little negligent. It has quite a Home Alone feel to it for all the Christmas movie lovers out there. But if we look into the context and the setting of the story, I think it can help us piece together what the author of Luke is trying to say. An important aspect of this story is its setting in the temple at Jerusalem. Today, synagogues are found in most major and many smaller cities around the world. This would not have been the case in Jesus' day, however. The only temple that existed at that time was in Jerusalem, and Jewish followers around the world would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship. The temple sat atop a hill in Jerusalem, and it is believed that the first temple was built by King Solomon, a major figure in the Old Testament, to house the Ark of the Covenant. The Babylonians would destroy this temple in 587 BC, and the Ark of the Covenant was lost to history. But when the Persians conquered Babylon, The peoples of Judea were permitted to rebuild a rather modest temple where they maintained many of the rituals seen in the Old Testament. This temple was largely respected by foreign rulers, although some instances did occur, including the event that is celebrated at Hanukkah. But the temple lacked the grandeur of its original design. 
When an old friend of this podcast came to power in Judea, however, he was determined to rebuild the temple to reflect his strength. Herod the Great introduced a major building program in Israel, and he thought of the temple in Jerusalem as his major showpiece. This new temple was truly an architectural marvel, and the complex that held the temple was simply massive. A visitor would pass through ornate gates into a large rectangular courtyard known as the Court of the Gentiles. Herod built this to resemble the Roman Forum or the Agora in Athens, so you would see both Jewish and Gentile peoples conducting business, meeting with friends, or performing official duties. This lowest level of the complex also held the courts of law where Jesus is found today in our story. The temple itself rises in levels, and each level restricts who can enter the area, with the final level, the Holy of Holies, permitting only special priests to enter. The complex itself also houses a fortress where Roman soldiers stood guard, a banking center, and a marketplace. All this to say, the setting for a story today is a massive area that would be continually busy, particularly during the three main pilgrimage festivals of the Jewish faith, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, and Passover. The first sentence tells us that Jesus' parents went every year to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Passover is still a major holiday in the Jewish faith today, and many of the most important moments in Jesus' life occurred during his pilgrimages to Jerusalem during this festival. It would have been an enormous celebration in the first century, where people from around the world gathered to celebrate. PBS describes it this way, quote, The biggest holiday in Judaism that would bring in pilgrims from all over the known world is the holiday of Passover. It resonates historically with the liberation of the children of Israel from Egypt so it has a tone of national liberation. There's a political aspect to the holiday, but also Jews everywhere, if they chose to, if they were pious, would put aside part of their income. It's sort of like the way Christmas clubs operate now. You'd put aside tithing money, and that money, or whatever it is from your property that you would put aside, was explicitly to be spent having a party in Jerusalem, and you would spend that savings when you went up to celebrate a pilgrimage holiday. Judaism in the first century maintained rigorous rules for entering the temple. Individuals needed to be in a place of spiritual and physical purity to enter the temple to celebrate Passover, so most families would journey to Jerusalem about a week beforehand to ensure they would meet the standards. This is likely where we encounter Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in this story, as they head to Jerusalem early for the Passover. People would travel in large family or local groups to these festivals to avoid bandits as well as make sure they could find each other amidst the chaos. A major reason for the author of Luke including this story is to show the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph, and the author is assuring the reader that Jesus has grown up in a family that observes all the necessary customs of their culture. The age of Jesus is another important point for this story. Naveen Saras, a Wisconsin minister with a PhD in Hebrew Bible and a Master of Divinity, explains it this way, quote, Mary and Joseph, as faithful Jews, make sure to fulfill their duties as parents toward their son Jesus. When Jesus was eight days old, Mary and Joseph went to the temple to name and to circumcise him. They also offered the Lord the appropriate offering. Now, they need to introduce Jesus to the Passover in Jerusalem. According to the Jewish tradition at that time, Joseph is obligated to teach Jesus the Torah. The rabbis agreed that a boy can start learning the Torah no later than puberty, which is about the age of 12. This is the explanation for why Jesus is in the temple and why he is likely conversing with the Jewish teachers in the courts of law. Some sources I have seen believe Jesus is going through a rite of passage into manhood by standing for questioning about the amount of knowledge he has about his religion and culture, and the amazement people have is at his answers. 
This would subvert our image of him teaching older men into something more akin to a brilliant child giving answers beyond the expected level. His age also likely explains why he is left behind by Mary and Joseph, who may be trying to give the young Jesus, nearing the age of adulthood in that time period, some freedom on the return journey. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is a complex little story to break down because a lot is happening in just a few verses. Many scholars believe that this story is told in a specific way for Jesus to declare he is in his father's house. Unique from the birth narrative we discussed last week, this is the first time Jesus expressly claims himself to be God's son. The purpose of this story is, in my opinion, threefold. To show that Jesus had faithful parents, to show Jesus' unnatural intelligence in a tradition that would be familiar to a Greco-Roman audience, and to give Jesus space to claim his status of God's child. Turning our attention to our other story, the first chapter of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn introduces us to a young girl named Francie Nolan who lives in Williamsburg, Brooklyn in 1912. Most Americans will be familiar with Brooklyn, but for anyone who might live outside of the States, Brooklyn is a borough of New York City just across the East River from Manhattan. It has historically been a place where many immigrant families arriving in New York City have lived, and until recently, it had several neighborhoods with a pretty high poverty rate. The first chapter shows us what a typical summer Saturday afternoon in her neighborhood looks like to Francie. She takes the metal and paper collected over the week with her younger brother to a junk man for money, she gets groceries for her mother, she follows her brother and his small gang around town, and she eats a meal with her mother and brother. The chapter beautifully illustrates Francie's love of words and her community, but it also makes it clear that her tiny family is struggling. Francie's mother cleans for a living, and her father is a singing waiter who struggles with alcoholism. Although the reader is acutely aware of the economic issues, the beauty of Betty Smith's writing is that the hints about the socioeconomic status of the family are buried in the joys that Francie finds in her summer Saturdays. And there is one joy that outshines all the rest in Francie's life. Chapter 2, which we will focus on today, starts this way. Quote, The library was a little old shabby place. Francie thought it was beautiful. The feeling she had about it was as good as the feeling she had about church. End quote. I'm sure more than a few of us can relate. The library is a special place in Francie's life, and we learn that she has a plan to read every book in the library. She is checking out and reading a book a day in alphabetical order, and she is currently stuck on the authors with the last name Brown. But today is Saturday, and on Saturday, she permits herself to read a book outside of her traditional alphabetical system. On Saturday, she asks the librarian for a recommendation, and the librarian recommends the same few books. The librarian never acknowledges or recognizes Francie, which is heartbreaking because Francie tells us, quote, A smile would have meant a lot to Francie, and a friendly comment would have made her so happy. She loved the library and was anxious to worship the lady in charge. But the librarian had other things on her mind. She hated children anyhow. End quote. Rushing home with books in hand, Francie heads to her favorite reading spot, the fire escape outside her small apartment, hidden by a tree growing in the yard next to her building. She put a small rug on the fire escape and got the pillow from her bed and propped it against the bars. Once out there, she was living in a tree. No one upstairs, downstairs, or across the way could see her, but she could look out through the leaves and see everything. Betty Smith evocatively makes this small Brooklyn neighborhood come alive through the eyes of Francie Nolan, and you can truly feel the peace that surrounds these small moments when you read that Francie is, quote, at peace with the world, and happy as only a little girl could be with a fine book and a little bowl of candy, end quote. 
A tree grows in Brooklyn, follows Francie until the age of 17. The book follows her through most of World War I, and Francie grows dramatically as a person in these few years. I won't go any further than this because I want to encourage anyone who has never read the book to pick it up, but I hope this small sneak peek will show you how eloquently this book is written. I will leave you with this last small quote from Francie. Sometimes she worried for fear a book would be lost in the library, and she'd never be able to read it again. She had once started copying books in a two-cent notebook. She wanted to own a book so badly, and she had thought that copying would do it. But the penciled sheets did not look like or smell like the library book, so she had given up, consoling herself with the vow that when she grew up, she would work hard, save money, and buy every single book that she liked. End quote. How fitting that Betty Smith, whose own experiences inspired little Francie, not only owned the books she wanted after working hard to become a writer, but created a book that has provided millions of other little girls with the courage to follow their dreams too. I think that is enough background for us to begin our discussion today. If there is anything I left out that you feel is important, then I am really sorry, and please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or Anchor to let me know. Now, with that being said, Let's head over to Jerusalem and Brooklyn, and let's dive in. Every culture uses stories to show what is important to them. These stories are often a mixture of history, legend, and values that a people want to pass down to each generation. One question that we might not think about a lot is where we go to hear or read the stories our culture wants us to know. The first thing I want to look at today is where these stories take place and how our protagonists relate to the settings. For Jesus, we have dived pretty extensively into the magnificent new temple that operates as a backdrop to the story. The temple served a lot of very important services for the people of Israel, and Britannica Encyclopedia tells us it was not only the focus of religious ritual, but also the repository of the Holy Scriptures and other national literature. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus is found with the teachers asking them questions. These teachers were rabbis who held a sort of open-air classroom environment, where people could learn from them and ask questions. So, in our biblical story today, we find Jesus visiting the place where all the most important cultural books and stories for his people would be found, and he is sitting and discussing scriptures with the individuals that can likely teach him the most. In many ways, this story is showing us Jesus' love for the scriptures and stories of his culture and his ability to reflect and think critically about what these stories mean. I think we find Francie in a similar state. Thanks to the wonderful invention of the printing press, books and literature are much more widely spread in Francie's lifetime than Jesus's. Rather than keeping handwritten documents safe in a central, imposing place like a temple, books were spreading quickly throughout the United States thanks to local libraries. The local library, even today, is where many Americans first encounter the stories our culture finds important. Almost every local library will hold books like The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, and The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Francie even mentions reading the Louisa May Alcott books, presumably Little Women and Little Men, from the library's collections. Francie is going to one of the places that America keeps its most valuable stories. What I love even more than simply the settings of these stories and the places of learning in their respective cultures is the ritualistic relationships they have with these places. Francie goes to the library every day to check out a book in alphabetical order, 
and she permits herself a sort of reading Sabbath to read a book out of order on Saturday. She describes the feeling she has entering the library as better than the emotions she experiences in church. Her library trip is infused with religious language, and it is clear that her trips to the library are a type of worship to the books that she so loves. Similarly, we learn in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus goes to Jerusalem every year for the Passover festival with his family. Every year, he enters the temple and must see the teachers sharing the knowledge with the community. He likely hears the lessons provided by the teachers, and I like to think he is eager to return to Jerusalem to learn more from these men who devote their lives to the stories and scriptures of Judaism. Both characters have this amazing combination of religious and knowledge-based experiences when they make their ritualistic visits. The humility and eagerness to learn displayed by Jesus and Francie is inspiring, and it serves as a terrific reminder to not take your local library or wherever you get your stories from for granted. The major difference for me is the treatment the two characters receive by the gatekeepers of knowledge when they visit these spaces. Jesus is permitted to sit among the teachers and ask his questions. The Gospel of Luke tells us that everyone who hears him speak is amazed by the boy's questions and answers. What this tells me is that the teachers in the temple are giving time and attention to a 12-year-old boy who is exhibiting unnatural ability, and Jesus' curiosity and respect for the stories of his culture are implicitly given permission to grow by these men. There is no possible way they can know Jesus is soon to create a religion that will captivate large parts of the world, so I can only assume that they would have permitted any other boy to do the same. Sadly, Francie isn't given the same attention. Almost sadder than a rebuke, Francie is met with apathy by the librarian. After checking out her daily book and asking for a recommendation, the narrator tells us, quote, A name on a card meant nothing to the librarian, and since she never looked up into a child's face, she never did get to know the little girl who took a book out every day and two on Saturday, end quote. I mean, can words even describe the emotional heartbreak in this sentence? Francie comes to the library every day, the only place she can freely access the books and stories she loves, and the librarian cannot even be bothered to notice her. How amazing that she can show up every Saturday and boldly ask for her recommendation in an atmosphere that would chill most people's desire to read. Both children show a genuine love for knowledge and a respect for the scriptures of their culture, but only Jesus is given the time and attention by his keepers of literature and language to let his curiosity grow. The other obvious difference here is the state of places where our stories take place. Francie enters a shabby little library, but Jesus enters an architectural marvel. Picture in your mind a dingy library with bad lighting that I am sure we have all seen at least once in our life. Now, imagine a soaring temple of marble and gold above you as warm sunlight shines all around you. Which one makes you want to stay and spend time there? While I think the grandeur of the temple cannot possibly be matched by the library, I do think Francie has one small advantage. Her temple is accessible every single day, and Jesus is only occasionally permitted to enter his temple. She can consult the teachers of Shakespeare, Dickens, and Alcott at any time, but Jesus can only consult his teachers a few times a year at most. In some ways, Francie's desire to learn can be met with new material every day. Jesus must sit on his questions for some time before being able to find answers. I'm not really sure which is better, to be honest, the daily satisfaction of the library or the sheer awe-inspiring view of the temple. Each has strengths and weaknesses for the main characters. What I love most about these stories is what they teach us about learning and knowledge. 
Both tell the story of children in poverty, inverting the expectations of those around them. Part of the reason Jesus amazes people around him is that he is a boy from Galilee without the formal training of other children who come from families with more money or power. Likewise, Francie's astounding ability to read book after book feels out of place to us because she is in a rough neighborhood in Brooklyn. Would we say the same if she was growing up across the East River in Manhattan, among the richest families of America? What these stories reveal is that while some may seek to gatekeep or restrict its reach, Knowledge, learning, and a love of great stories is egalitarian in its ability to move people. Thankfully, we are witnessing an even further proliferation of knowledge among a wider audience in the internet age, but I think it's important to think about what barriers exist in our world today for children like Francie and Jesus. The Francies of the world need us to be like the teachers in Jesus' temple, and I believe it is the responsibility of all of us to make the world a little bit more accessible in any way we can. Parents can be a complicated topic. Every person has a different relationship with their parents, and sometimes those relationships can change multiple times within even a single day. I think the parental relationships for Francie and Jesus are lurking in the background of both of these stories, and it can be really easy to overlook their importance for both of them. Let's take a closer look at Mary and Joseph and the Nolans to see how they influence our protagonist. Mary and Joseph are a bit more conspicuous in Jesus' tale, because in some ways their apparent negligence is the frame for the story. They bring Jesus to Jerusalem, and they leave him behind. What's worse is they don't make the discovery for three days. I mentioned in the historical background that the author of the Gospel of Luke is probably using this story to allow Jesus to pronounce himself the Son of God, but the story is still a little funny. It's the original Home Alone, honestly. That being said, what I think the story is really revealing is two parents who are attempting to give Jesus some room to grow as he is growing into adulthood, at least in the ancient world. What's more interesting to me is their surprise that Jesus is in the temple impressing the teachers with his knowledge. We discussed last week how an angel appeared to Mary to tell her God's plans for Jesus. So why is she surprised that Jesus is skilled in religious discussion? I think the one answer is that she sees her son on a day-to-day basis, and it can be difficult to realize the intelligence of your child when you are busy raising a family and trying to survive in Galilee. Still, her sense of anger is palpable when she confronts the newly found Jesus with the question of, Son, why have you treated us like this? Jesus' obedient response is likely a hint that they have a tight relationship, and his failure to return home with his parents is more a result of his excitement at discussions in the temple rather than teenage rebellion. For Francie, her parents are a bit more in the background in this scene. As I mentioned in the historical context and background, Francie's mother, Katie, is some sort of professional cleaning woman, and her father, Johnny, is a singing waiter. What I love about the description of Francie's parents is that they help us to see the two parts of Francie. Katie represents the entrepreneurial and persistent Francie, who overcomes all obstacles in her path, and Johnny represents the artistic Francie, who enjoys books and the language all around her. What is immediately clear in the first two chapters of the book, however, is the sheer amount of time that Francie spends alone. Like Jesus, her experience at the library is by herself. She is navigating the knowledge center of her community without her parents. Also, like Jesus, it doesn't readily appear at the beginning of the book that either Katie or Johnny recognizes the talents of their daughter. Like Mary, Katie is a busy woman trying to raise two children and control her alcoholic husband. She sees Francie every day 
and it can be tough to truly see how different your child is when you are continuously cooking, cleaning, or helping your family. I think it can be easy to think that the parents of Francie and Jesus don't provide the necessary attention to their children. Obviously, Jesus is left behind in a massive city for three days without Mary and Joseph knowing. For Francie, we have scenes where Francie is selling scrap to a man who appears to enjoy the attention of young women in a creepy way, Francie's brother is routinely picking fights in the street, and Francie frequents the store of a candy salesman who has lured girls into his back room. These are not minor things to overlook, but I think to take a critical view of the parents of these stories is to miss the ways that they love their children. The love Mary and Joseph have for Jesus is evident in the first sentence of today's biblical story. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Mary and Joseph fulfill all the religious requirements of parents in Judaism, and then some for Jesus. Beyond even that, the journeys to Jerusalem cost money, so they are paying to include Jesus in these trips. And although they lose him, they march the three days back to Jerusalem, and Mary says they have been anxiously searching for him. It would be easy to overlook the love they show because of their admittedly big mistake, but the hints of the family's affection for one another abound in this story. The same is true for Francie. Although we see her spend quite a bit of time alone, it isn't as if Katie is avoiding her children. The first chapter explains the little family often eats together, and there is a small section that beautifully illustrates the type of mother Katie Nolan is. Quote, There was a special Nolan idea about coffee. It was their one great luxury. Neely and Francie loved their coffee, but seldom drank it. Mama poured Francie's coffee and put the milk in it even though she knew the child wouldn't drink it. End quote. Katie's sisters often questioned Katie about why she bought a luxury item like coffee only to waste it on their children. Here is her reply. Quote, I think it's good that people like us can waste something once in a while and get the feeling of how it would be to have lots of money and not have to worry about scrounging. This queer point of view satisfied Mama and pleased Francie. It was one of the links between the ground-down poor and the wasteful rich. The girl felt that even if she had less than anybody in Williamsburg, somehow she had more. She was richer because she had something to waste, end quote. The motherly love of Katie oozes off the page when you read this excerpt. She keenly understands what having to scrimp and save can do to a person over time, and she uses this little ceremony to allow the children some release from their poverty. It's moments like these that I truly believe give Francie the confidence to return to the library every day, even though she is ignored. Katie is building up her sense of worth and self. A casual glance at these stories can make it seem as if the parents of Jesus and Francie are absent and potentially neglectful. I don't think that is the case at all. What I see is two parents attempting to give space to their children as they grow older, and I even see some small attempts to let them live freely before the reality of their poverty sets in all too quickly. Both Francie and Jesus live in a time when child labor is exceedingly common, and they will both have jobs in potentially just a few years. Here, the children are learning to do things for themselves, but they don't have the responsibilities of their parents yet. They can follow their artistic and intellectual curiosities, and I see two sets of parents wanting them to experience these things before they join a workforce and economic situation that will beat them down. I think these stories can allow us the grace to see how sometimes love manifests itself with a space to let us find what we love, and I hope it allows us to see beyond the mistakes of the parents in these stories and understand the love that lies just below the surface. The last small point I want to make today is how our two stories invert our expectations. 
As we encounter more stories, we begin to see patterns in how these stories are laid out and how characters will respond. And it can be difficult to write outside of these conventional norms, because it is what we have come to know and sometimes love. There is a reason people love romantic comedies. However, our two stories today invert much of what we expect. For the Gospel of Luke, we have several things that one might not expect. I think the first is the fact that Mary and Joseph leave Jesus behind. As a reader, you have just witnessed an angel tell Mary how special her child Jesus will be. And then, in the same chapter, you watch her leave that same child in Jerusalem. It completely goes against what a reader expects. Further, Mary and Joseph are surprised to find that their son is in the temple discussing religion with the teachers. Why? Again, Mary has been told that Jesus is the Son of God. Why would she not expect to find him in the temple? This is exactly Jesus' response. And even then, the scripture tells us that the couple was confused by Jesus' answer. The first two chapters of Luke give us an expectation that Mary and Joseph will understand the special purpose and nature of their son Jesus. But it appears that can be harder to remember in the context of day-to-day life. Before we pile on to Mary and Joseph, however, I think the young Jesus also subverts our expectations. Let's not forget that he, whether intentionally or not, did not join his family in the trip back to Nazareth. A reader would likely expect Jesus to be exceedingly obedient to his parents, because that is, after all, one of the major tenets of the Old Testament laws. But here, Jesus is sort of mischievous. Sure, there are worse things than staying behind to go to essentially religious classes, but Mary and Joseph's response tells us that Jesus isn't blameless in this lack of communication. The entire story is almost a comedy of errors where everything we expect to happen never occurs. Likewise, a tree grows in Brooklyn routinely subverts our expectations of a book like this. American literature is filled with young children in poverty who can use their amazing skills to rise out of poverty with the aid of their friendly family and neighbors. That doesn't happen here. Francie is obviously a young woman with an intense passion for reading, but we see no hints that her reading ability is seen by others. In fact, she is usually alone when she reads, and no one ever seems to ask her what she thinks about the books she carries. Her family is saving money, but it's never stated that the money is meant to further Francie's education, like other books of a similar format. Further, the adults in her neighborhood are honestly either mean or creepy. She sells scrap to a man who gives her an extra penny if she will submit to his pinching her cheek and saying she is nice, and she buys candy from a man who is later found to bring young girls into his back room. These aren't men that you can trust, and honestly, they hint at the sexual violence many young women in this neighborhood likely endure. Francie can't even find friendship in the librarian who sees her every day, because the librarian hates children and never acknowledges her. This is not a clean, whitewashed neighborhood to tell the story of a young girl with promise. This is a very real description of a neighborhood that can be sweet, violent, and apathetic all at the same time. These two stories are interesting because they truly test a reader's ability to think about what is being said. The authors are continually subverting your expectations as a reader, and I look at these stories as an invitation to think critically about the world where these stories are taking place. In many ways, These stories give us a realistic impression of how difficult it is for Francie and Jesus, and they don't allow us to bathe in a glowing feeling that everything is going to turn out okay. In real life, we experience ups and downs daily, and why should it be different for Jesus and Francie? Part of why I love these stories is that they do press our nose to the glass to see what our protagonists face, 
and I think that it is why they are memorable. Life doesn't fit the safe and conventional norms we hope for, and sometimes we want literature that doesn't either. The last thing I would like to say about these two stories today might be a particular trait of an American like me reading the stories. In both of our stories today, we see young people with talents who are seeking to learn more about the world around them, but they aren't doing it for any sense of economic or social gain. Francie loves the shabby library because she can find books there, and she isn't concerned about whether her reading skills can give her some sort of economic advantage. Similarly, Jesus is sitting with the teachers because he loves learning things about his religion and his culture. He isn't making money by asking these questions. Beyond even that, the parents in these stories show a love of their children that is not attached to the skills these children exhibit. Katie doesn't tell everyone how smart Francie is all the time, and Mary and Joseph are amazed at Jesus' religious thinking, so they probably aren't all aware of it beforehand. There is a distinct lack of entrepreneurialism attached to these stories, and I find that refreshing. I think these stories inspire me to love people like Mary and Katie Nolan, without thinking about what skills or talents they possess. How many people would I turn around and travel three days to get, or spend money on something they love just so they can waste it? The number is probably not as high as I would wish. But I also want to find what I love to do, like Francie and Jesus, without thinking about how it might help me gain financially. They love to learn because they're passionate about books and religion. What do I do in my life simply because I love it? So, my real hope in reading these stories is that it might remind me, and others, to boldly learn about what I love, love people for who they are and not what they can do, and chase my passions because they bring me joy rather than monetary gain. I believe if we can do that, we might all just be a little bit happier. That is all we have for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about Francie and Jesus, and I had a great time putting together today's show. I found some great sources that helped me learn more about both of these stories, so stick around after the conclusion if you want to learn where you can learn more. The next episode will be the conclusion to our three-part series, Examining Female Authors with Female Characters. I have a couple of different books in mind, and I am still attempting to decide what I would like to do. I might put up a Twitter poll soon with the options, so please find the show on there and vote for what you would like to hear. Also, as I mentioned last episode, the plan is to release a show every two weeks now to help me have time to do my research. I was a little bit behind for this episode, but be looking for a new episode in two weeks on Wednesday. I want to thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoyed this little podcast, then please share us with others that are lovers of books, biblical comparisons, or anything in between. We are just starting out, so we need all the help we can to get the word out. Also, please check out our website at anchor.fm slash booknerdinthebible, or find us on Twitter at booknerd underscore Bible. You can find the next episode of A Book Nerd in the Bible on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Good Pods. Thanks again, and may the book nerd in you be blessed until we meet again. This week would have been impossible to write without some strong sources. I really hope you will check out some of these great pieces to learn more about the stories we looked at today. For more about A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, check out, obviously, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith, which is currently being published by HarperCollins. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, 
an online dissertation by Carol Seary Johnson. The Case for a Tree Grows in Brooklyn as the Great American Novel by Spencer Baum. Women's History Month, North Brooklyn's great feminist classic, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Jeff Cobb. And The Hungry Artist, rereading Betty Smith's A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Joyce Zonana in the Hudson Review. For more about the finding of Jesus at the temple, from Luke 2, verses 41 through 52, read The Cultural World of the Bible, 4th edition, by Victor H. Matthews. Daily Life in the Time of Jesus, by Henry Daniel Rops. Rome and Jerusalem, The Clash of Ancient Civilizations, by Martin Goodman. Jerusalem, an Archaeological Biography, by Herschel Shanks. The Gospel According to Luke, Entry in Britannica Encyclopedia. The Temple of Jerusalem Entry in Britannica Encyclopedia. A Portrait of Jesus' World, Temple Culture, from the PBS Frontline special called From Jesus to Christ. At the age of 12, The Boy Jesus in the Temple, Luke 2, 41-52, The Emperor Augustus and the Social Setting of the Third Gospel by B.S. Billings. Herod the Great's Building Program by Andrew Teasdale in the Brigham Young University Studies. Luke 2, 41-50, Foreshadowing of Jesus as a Teacher, by John J. Kilgallen, in Biblica. Simply Irresistible, Augustus, Herod, and the Empire, by Byron R. McCain, in the Journal of Biblical Literature. The Demise of the Temple as Culture Center in Luke-Acts, an Exploration of the Rending of the Temple Veil, by Joel B. Green, in Review Biblique. The Temple at Jerusalem in Jesus' Day, by Clyde Weber Vital in the Biblical World. The entry for Luke 2.46 from Eliot's Commentary for English Readers. And Commentaries on Luke 2.41-52 by Craig A. Satterley, Naveen Saras, O. Wesley Allen Jr., and Ronald J. Allen from the Working Preacher website run by Luther Seminary. I hope these sources will be useful for you as you learn more about today's stories. Thanks for listening. And I hope you will join us again in two weeks' time.